What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to Bill Handel, on demand from KFI AM 640. Don't drive or operate heavy machinery until you know how Bill Handel affects you. High doses may cause mental problems. Here's Wayne Resnick. KFI AM 640. Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app, it is the Bill Handel Show, and he is back from his Italian summer vacation on Monday. Wayne here with the morning crew until 9, and then uh, it'll be the Gary and Shannon Show with Neil Saavedra in for Gary. But before that, our own Dean Sharp, the House Whisperer, is going to join us at 8.30. There is an El Nino weather pattern expected to come. That means a lot of rain on your house. So uh, Dean's going to be here today. And get a get a lead on uh, yard drainage issues, what to do uh, with your roof, and all the important questions that you should be asking yourself. I'm assuming he'll have all the important answers to those questions. I will tell you right now, this is one of my uh, biggest anxiety provokers, is the idea of a water incursion into my home. So every time it rains, I look up and go, oh, please don't let, don't let this now be the time that my roof has a leak. So I'm very, very happy he's going to be talking about this today. Now, let's talk about disaster relief here in the United States and around the world. And the first thing is FEMA is going to run out of money and very quickly, apparently. They have a, a, a deficit. And they will run out of money in August. And by the end of September, the projection is that they will be running on a $10 billion deficit. And normally what you can do is you can do some kind of a stopgap funding thing and, and you can plug in some more money for FEMA. And, they, and if that was going on, they could probably get almost $20 billion right now. However, here's the thing. That stopgap funding legislation that is in the pipeline needs to pass by September 30th, and that may be too late because hurricane season is upon us. And so what they're worried about is uh, having a couple of big hurricanes and boom, they're out of funds. So you've got lawmakers in the Senate and in the House, and they are pushing through an emergency spending bill to give FEMA more money, $11.5 billion to be specific. And one of the interesting things about this push is uh, it is bipartisan. In fact, in the Senate, the emergency funding for FEMA bill was introduced by three Republican senators, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott from Florida and uh, Roger Wicker from Mississippi. Oh, what do they have in common? They represent hurricane-prone states. So you can understand legitimately their, their special interest in this problem. 
And then uh, some guy, a senator from North Carolina, Tom Tillis, has also signed on to it. So this, this, you know, we're talking about, hey, give an agency more money in an emergency fashion right now. And if you're a political partisan, you might normally think of that as being something Democrats like to do. But in this case, that's not the case. And there are Democrats who are also involved in trying to get this money in there as soon as possible. Now, this is still in the, the old-fashioned paradigm of a disaster occurs and then FEMA is mobilized and they go out and help people. There is a new way of trying to deal with disaster relief. We're not doing it yet in the United States, but they are doing it all around the world. And it's this. Some natural disasters you know are coming. You know when a hurricane is coming. You know if you are in a long-term drought. So what they do is they give people relief money before the disaster happens. It's called anticipatory cash relief. And one of the reasons that they're exploring this and using it is, number one, when a disaster happens, it is often worse than it would have been 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And around the world, these disasters tend to inflict the most damage on the poorest people. You know, if, if you have a house and a hurricane blows it down and you have insurance for a hurricane, then it sucks. Believe me, your life is upended for years, but you, you, can, you will get another house. Well, poor people around the world, man, hurricane comes, knocks down their little house. That's it. They don't have insurance. They don't have nothing. Maybe they're a farmer with a little plot of land, wipes out all of their farming infrastructure. They're just screwed. So because you could lose your house, you could lose your way to make a living. If you have livestock and they go away, you've lost everything. So here's what happens. You give small amounts of money in advance of these anticipated disasters, and then you can measure the outcomes. The World Food Program did a thing uh, in Bangladesh. They knew that there was going to be extreme flooding, or they knew they certainly knew there was a big risk that there was going to be extreme flooding. So they gave $50 to 23,000 different families who live along this river in Bangladesh that they that they assumed is going to be completely swollen and just, you know, flood everything. And that happened. They had the big flooding. And when when it all sort of quieted down, they went around and they talked to people and they determined that the people who got the $50 in advance were far less likely to have had to skip a day of food while the floods were happening than the people who didn't get the $50. And that's not the World Food Program saying that because they certainly would want it to have worked out well. That's independent research uh, out of Oxford University went in and, and found that. So the point is it helped people be more food secure during a natural disaster. That's just one example. There are many others. Uh, they give small amounts of money to people before 
droughts that allow them to better fortify their fields. One guy got uh, $400 in pre-disaster relief and used it to buy a little solar panel so that they could have a, a light and a fan in their home even after the disaster hit and the electricity went out. I think it's an idea worth exploring. He, even here in the United States. But the first the first thing is we got to get FEMA more money or they're not going to be able to help anybody before or after a disaster. So a study now has come out. It's a survey, really. And it is out of the uh, Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative at UC San Francisco. They were able to administer questionnaires to 3,200 homeless people did in-depth interviews with 365. They were able to talk to homeless people in cities, in the country, in the suburbs. This is amazing, just the number of people they were able to include in this survey. The last time there was something at this level was almost 30 years ago. And they found some things. And here are some of the things. And some of these are exactly what you might expect. That if you don't have housing, that that itself is a big barrier to getting health care, to getting income, and uh, leads to a lot of discrimination in somebody's daily life. 25% of the people said they can't get prescription medications for their physical health conditions. Half of them said that their overall health was poor or fair Two-thirds of them had at least one chronic health condition. About half said they had symptoms of depression or anxiety. 12% reported having hallucinations. A third of them reported spending at least one night in jail during their current episode of homelessness. And over a third of them said they lost belongings to confiscations uh, in the prior six months, including some personal documents and or medication. So this is, you know, this is a window into the fact that, yes, uh, the homelessness issue is to a great extent a mental health issue. No question about it. And it's also an issue that pits uh, the people who don't have anywhere to live against the rest of the community, i.e., you know, people come in and they clear up a homeless encampment. And the next thing you know, somebody doesn't have their medicine anymore. Now, there were some things that you would not expect. And one of them is this. And this is really, really eye-opening. How little notice people have before they lost their housing. The, the average amount of notice that the, these folks reported was 10 days if they were leaseholders. So if they were in a rental lease or if they had a mortgage, 10 days is the average that they get. That's not a lot of time to figure out what you're going to do about every aspect of your life. And then non-leaseholders, these would be people who are living with friends or living with their family. The average notice was one day. I'm not trying to disparage anybody. 
Um, you you certainly could read into this that if you're living with friends or family, that it, it's in the form of they're they're you know helping you. You pro you probably needed a place to live. They're letting you live with them. And if people are getting an average of one day's notice to get out, something's happened. There's been some kind of a problem or a dispute. So that's the one thing that was kind of surprising. Uh, many people find themselves suddenly homeless. The other thing that was surprising is just how little money people were, were able to have before they lost their housing. The median monthly household income of the people in this study was $960. That's not enough money to sustain anything. It's certainly not enough money to have a place to live. Now, what do you do with this information? Uh, you can look at things like uh, whether rental subsidies could help people stay in their apartments or whether how you know more housing vouchers those things imply enough supply of housing to do it and that's a money throwing money at the issue answer but here's the thing there are at least three distinct um demographics maybe demographics isn't the right word but three distinct groups within within the umbrella of homelessness you have people who um, are aberrationally homeless, meaning they, they haven't been homeless their whole lives. And then something happens. They lose a job. They get a big medical, but whatever it is, something happens and now they're homeless and they're not, they, they have no experience with it. It's not their normal way of being. These are people, this, this part of the homelessness problem absolutely can be solved with money. That's the part of the homelessness problem you can throw money at and fix it because it's literally all they need is money for a place to live. If it's an apartment, if it's a hotel room, whatever it may be. Then you have people who are more chronically homeless. The people that you think of when people say homelessness is a mental health issue. People with substance abuse problems, people with mental health disorders that are not being treated, they really have trouble maintaining the stability of a lifestyle that would allow them to maintain housing. You can't just throw money at that. Now you're talking treatment. Giving somebody a, a, a rental subsidy so they can go rent an apartment is not a treatment. It's money. You can throw money at treatment, but you still have to figure out the treatment. And then you have the group of people who want to live out there. They don't want a conventional way of living. It's a choice. I'm not saying it's a majority of homeless. I don't believe it is a majority of homeless. But you know, we all know there are people who have been offered all the help that they would need to not be homeless anymore and decline to take the help. And that part of the problem, I, I'm not sure what you do about that. Probably more just enforcement of camping laws where you're allowed to have them and just make it difficult for them to keep choosing that way of living. There was one other 
surprising and disheartening result, and that is that the rate of homelessness amongst older people has risen faster than with any other age group. And that tracks another trend in this country. Back in 1983, there were 175,000 plus what we call defined benefit pension plans. This is where you work for a company and you have a pension and the, the pension is based on if you work here this long, this is how much money you would get. What we normally think of as a pension, the same kinds of pensions that a lot of public employees still have. And that was the peak. And over the next 40 years, employers started going to less expensive defined contribution plans. They're optional. The other thing was not optional. You just got it. It's optional. And what will happen is you can put money in a 401k and maybe your employer will match some of it. But really, the, the, the first thing is entirely subsidized by the employer. The second thing is minimally subsidized by the employer. And the fact of the matter is that today, 12% of private sector workers have access to that old school guaranteed pension. So it makes some sense, some sad sense, that over the last 40 years, as one of the retirement safety nets that people could rely on, Social Security plus a pension from your employer has gone away. And at the same time, the population of older homeless people has risen. And joining me now, as he does every Wednesday the man who whispers to houses, the host of Home with Dean Sharp on Saturdays from 6 to 8 a.m. and Sundays from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., ladies and gentlemen, Dean Sharp. Oh, yeah, the music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how we know it's you, Dean. You know, it's it gets annoying at times being followed around by these minstrels everywhere I go. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Well, file a restraining order. If you don't like it, <laughs> I would find All it right, hard. I'm here. I'm here. Yes. I would find it hard to get mad about it. If some group of people decided they wanted to follow me everywhere I go and play music in my honor. No, it's just that, you know, you know, you get introduced or somebody says, oh, here, uh, here's Dean Sharp. And I, you know, and I, I, I go to put my hand out and say hello, but then the minstrels kick in and then I have to wait. I have to wait for the little home tune to end. I see before you slows your day down. I understand. Hey, listen, uh, we are talking today about, I'm going to say, water that originates outside of your home and how it can affect your home and what you need to do to protect your home. So please tell us, what do we need to know? Okay, so why are we talking about this in July right here as we're kind of peeking into summer, right? Uh, the reason is this, uh, you know, there have been a lot of things in the news lately. One of the things that hasn't been, uh, in my opinion, covered very much is the fact that just, uh, I want to say three weeks ago, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration officially announced it's real, it's here, it's official, El Nino. We are in an El Nino year, an El Nino cycle. Now, we just in Southern California came off an extremely unusually long and wet winter because of, well, climate shift and change and warming and all sorts of things like that. But 
we have come right from that into an El Nino, which traditionally brings us even more water. And so it's not a guarantee, but but uh, all the best climatologists that I'm aware of are basically pointing to fall and winter and saying, Southern California, be aware, we're going to have very likely another long, wet winter. And so that is why right now, not two weeks before it happens, but now, while it's dry and sunny and warm, now is the time to focus in on the roof and on the drainage systems around your house so that when that water drops from the sky yet again, it doesn't, uh, you know, catch you unprepared. I would imagine as a dummy, as opposed to a house expert like you, that the broad stroke of this is actually straightforward. You, you want water to basically go off of and away from your house. Is that That's fair? absolutely true. It's All absolutely right. True. You now the, the problem the, becomes. Okay, but how? But 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 I'm going to interrupt you here. Here's where it. Here is where it's probably that next step, where, in my opinion, as uh, somebody who you know is conscious of not just the design of an individual house and an individual property, but the design of an entire neighborhood, a town, a city, and so forth. What happens to the water then? Yes, the fundamental rules, as you just stated them, are we want the water that falls on the house to get off the house, not into the house. And we want the water that's on the property not to rush towards the house. We want to ferry it away from the foundation or the base walls of our home. But then where does drainage go? Uh, one of the questions that I'm going to be asking this weekend is what is better than a really well-mapped-out, well-planned-out area drainage system on a piece of property. There is something that's better. And what's better is a piece of property that is designed to not shed all of its water out into the storm drain, but to absorb as much of it as possible. Ooh, well, how, what do I want to do either if I'm building a house or I think most people are buying a house, what are the things I want to do to accomplish that? Well, one of the things is uh, something that makes me very, very happy as a designer is that we minimize the amount of hardscape around our home. You know, we've, I believe that we're coming out of a long, maybe two or three generational cycle of home design in uh, the whole idea of, your house is to be as antiseptic as possible. Just, just lots of hardscape. I don't want to step out into soil or anything like that. And so for a couple of generations now, homes, especially here in Southern California, have had way, way, way too much hardscape around them. And by that, I simply mean hardscape that we don't need. I don't want to eliminate hardscape around your house. You know, I want you to have a lovely patio and a lovely deck and uh, pathways that move from one part of the yard to the next. But I want you to limit it to what is essential and create these destinations. And in between, guess what we need? We need landscape. We need open areas of soil and when possible to create the hardscape in a way so that it is not impermeable, but uh, what we call semi-permeable. In other words, it allows water to not just roll off of it uh, into a drain and then get conveyed out into the street, but actually make it into the soil around the house. No one has to worry about water 
getting into the soil around their house. We just want to keep it around, uh, away from the foundation edge of the, of the house. Now, is this this consideration of, hey, we want to absorb some of this water, is that specifically for the benefit of my house? Or is this an altruistic idea that is for the benefit of the greater neighborhood? It is both. And I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, it is altruistic in the sense that uh, all of Southern California, as you remember, uh, we are just coming out of a long, long, dry drought process. And one of the reasons why we're in that situation is because we have exhausted and lowered our own aquifers, right? So as a community, we need to allow water-based uh, aquifers, soil-based aquifers beneath us to uh, recollect so that we can use that water as a community. But it is not just altruistic. Uh, it is uh, very selfish in a way. I'll give you an example of my house. Almost the entire uh, rear yard of my house is permeable and absorbs water. Because of this wet winter, I just, I mean literally, I'm not exaggerating, just turned on our drip irrigation system at the end of last week. It has not been on since November, mid-November. And that is because... Our yard absorbs moisture, and the moisture is there for our plants, our trees, and so on. And it has been rolling on it and riding on it this long, you know, over six months. Uh, and that is a serious reduction of uh, watering. And it also benefits all the plants around here because it does push them a little bit to send roots deeper. Uh, to search for it a little longer instead of just sucking up water on the surface all the time. And as a result, our plants get healthier. Dean, I just quickly, very quickly, I know you said you want your, your yard to absorb some of the water that comes down and that if you have a lot of hardscape, that makes it tough. But let's say uh, you don't really have any hardscape and you just have a yard. Is there a specific thing that you can do to make your existing yard more absorbent? Uh, plant, uh, plants. I mean, what you don't want is just a bare dirt yard, you know, and when we say, Hey, expose it to the water and let it absorb in the best, best, best way to do that is to have those areas covered, uh, in, uh, plant materials, whether it's uh, turf or lawn or trees or shrubs or flowers, or, you know, all of the above the, the point being, we want the roots of those materials to hold the soil in place so that we don't have a runoff and erosion. And simultaneously, we want the plants themselves to actually uh, place, help guide and direct and place water in the soil, water that they will themselves be using later. So that's really the key. So we're not talking about just a barren yard with lots of exposed soil. We're just talking a big, beautiful, lovely, green, and colorful plant material everywhere possible. All right, let's move on to roofs. Is, is there one main thing to know about roofs, or is it a little more complicated than that? Well, you know, roofs are a system. That's maybe the most important thing everybody needs to know. The thing, the, the, the part of the roof that we are always staring at is just one component. In other words, the shingle uh, up on top that we see that is both decorative and functional. It is just the outermost piece of a, uh, a relatively complex system. 
Uh, what everybody needs to know is underneath those shingles, and this is where, as a typical homeowner, gets kind of uh, a little bit myopic here. They just focus in on what kind of shingle, what kind of roofing material shingle are we going to get. Equally important, if not more so, uh, to the dry-in of your house. And by dry-in, I mean when we actually make your roof watertight. It is not the shingles that make your roof watertight. It is the underlayment, the material that is under the shingles and the flashings that that underlayment ties into. The flashings are the metal strips. There's edge metals that go all the way around the roof that drop into the gutters. There are flashings that penetrate uh, for everything that penetrates the roof. There are pipes and vents and things coming out, flashings up against chimneys. Anytime that there's disruption in the roof line at all, a flashing is involved. The quality of those flashings, the quality of how they were installed, and the underlayment that you'll never, ever see again once the shingles go down. That thing is critically, critically important. And so if you're going to spend extra money on a roofing job, you talk to your roofer and say, okay, fine, shingles are fine, but let's talk about the underlayment. What kind of high-quality underlayment are you putting down? And the answer should be something like a self-sealing underlayment that's flexible, that can stretch, that seals around roofing nail holes and seals on itself so that once we've laid it out, even though it comes in rolls, once we've laid it out and the seams self-seal, we basically have one continuous membrane covering over the entire roof. That is a guarantee of a roof that goes long, long decades into the future without a leak. That having been said, is there a material for the visible part of that roof that's better? Oh, for the visible part of the roof? Yeah, I mean, there there are materials that are better and worse. It really comes down to, and this is the cool thing about where we're at right now, in this day and age of design and technology, whatever the design of your roof requires, shakes, shingles, uh, Spanish tile, uh, you know, slate, whatever that uh, is, there is a uh, high quality roofing material that will meet that design need and get the job done. And really, by getting the job done, I mean, take the brunt of the water that rolls off the roof. Uh, but also, and this is most important in Southern California, that roofing material up there that is uh, covering over the underlayment that I was telling you about, its primary job is to keep that um, underlayment from being exposed to not rain, but UV sunlight, because in SoCal, that's what ages and breaks a roof down. Not rain every day, the sun. Oh, wow. So here's what I learned. The visible part of the roof is not really the thing. When it comes to keeping the water out of your house, it's not really that's not its job. Its job is to it's, protect the, the protect the thing underneath it that's keeping the water out of your house. That's exactly right, oh. because uh, here's here's the fact I, I could stand at the low edge of your roof, Wayne, with a high pressure hose, spray water up at the shingles and water is going to get up in between the shingles and to the underneath side of the shingle as well. Okay, so the the shingles the that are up there, the tiles, they're only good at shedding water that drops down on them and, and then lets them roll off in the proper direction of gravity. But we can drive wind and rain up underneath those shingles. That's why it is the underlayment underneath that's getting the the ultimate job done. It's the last best barrier between your house and the water. All right, Dean, thank you so much. 
Looking forward to hearing you Saturday, 6 to 8 a.m. and Sunday, 9 to noon, right here on KFI. This is KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. You've been listening to The Bill Handel Show. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app. 